0: Today's episode of Dog Nation Daily is brought to you by Kroger, fresh for everyone. Presented by DogNation.com, this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans. Here's your host, Brandon Adams. And welcome in everybody to Dog Nation Daily, daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans presented by Kroger. You know, once again... You know, working our way back to something that sort of feels like the normal version of this show as you've come to expect it since what August of 2015 or on video going back to spring of 2017. We've been doing this now for quite some time, been dealing with some issues, but boy, we're working our way back towards something that feels a little bit more normal. If you're watching on video, hopefully, you notice it sort of looks a little bit more normal. Hopefully, the sound of things will be a little bit more normal today here as well. So, we are just really happy to have all of you on all of that. And one of the things we're going to get into in a pretty heavy dose here, coming up a little bit, Georgia made another addition in the transfer portal yesterday, and it was another wide receiver. This has become a little bit of a trend for Georgia in recent years, adding receivers in the transfer portal. We're going to talk about what that means, and specifically what Georgia might be getting in the person of Michael Jackson, obviously a very famous name. We'll try to avoid some of the uh, uh, the puns associated with the King of Pop here, and do this more along the uh, lines of an actual football conversation as it relates to Michael Jackson. And here coming up in just a couple of moments. Prior to that, I want to go back in time here, at least just for a little bit, but I do so with a specific purpose in mind. It's about looking ahead to the future and what the future of college football is going to look like and you know the understanding of how if you're Georgia or if you're Georgia within the SEC, how both this program and this conference operates. In the new landscape we're about to see here. I think that's an important uh, discussion to have. And one of the things that you notice is, and this is just the nature of college football fans, but one of the things you notice is, is that the argument about who should and shouldn't have been in the college football playoff, that continues to linger. There are a lot of Florida State fans who are mad. They feel like Alabama's lost to Michigan is proof that Florida State should have been there uh I think that frankly there's a lot of Georgia fans who are still sort of talking about the fact that hey this pretty clearly was one of the four best teams winning by 60 points in the bowl game would seem to be proof of something it's not the end all be all because obviously we know that bowl games are a little bit of a different sort of separate entity from the rest of the regular season but at the same time we're also not going to insult your intelligence and act like when you win a game by 60 points it's not indicative of something What we've said before is that game between Georgia and Florida State was just proof of a difference that there is a difference between the top teams in the SEC and the top teams in the ACC, and that difference does make a distinction that's supposed to matter. And moving forward, that difference has got to be respected, and we don't really feel like it was respected enough coming into this year's college football playoff discussion. So I want to spend a second on, okay, well, what does that mean now for the future here? I want to start with. I'm going to go back to Monday SEC Commissioner Greg Sankey from Pasadena was on the Paul Feinbaum show and in discussing the kind of landscape around all of this as it relates to college football Sankey kind of once again doubled down in his belief that the team that actually should have been the college ball playoff among the four best teams was Georgia but he'd also apparently according to what he told Paul Feinbaum cautioning both Georgia and Alabama the two SEC teams in the potential discussion for the playoff about how to behave if for some reason they were excluded I think this is interesting especially in contrast to everything we've seen from Florida State I think it sets us up for where we need to go today let me let you hear from Monday SEC Commissioner uh, Greg Sankey on the Paul Feinbaum show from Pasadena this is what Sankey said
1: on Sunday morning after our championship game I didn't know I didn't know if the answer to the question you asked me and you and Ryan asked me that I was asked on game day, will this be the first year there's no SEC team in? Now, if I'm asked that question, the wrong answer is, oh, yeah, you know, that could happen. I'm not certainly, I'm certainly not going to say that. We had a statement prepared from our office that would have said we're disappointed. We have a different view of who belonged in the four-team college football playoff. And, And by the way, I think Georgia was one of the four best teams through the season. I still do. The committee has to make decisions. But what we weren't going to do is point fingers in an acclaim a situation. You know, I had conversations with Georgia and Alabama. that If, if both were left out, and obviously one was, that we're, we weren't going to say, you know, it, it's, it's this inflammatory thing. It's bad for college football, Trump. That's the system that everyone agreed to, to participate in.
0: So obviously what Greg Sankey's doing there is in addition to making the case for Georgia, kind of kind of pointing out the contrast for what he thought was I think distasteful behavior on the uh, port of Florida State, which we'll get to here in a moment. But as far as the other point here about the fact that, hey, looking around, Sankey once again saying, I do believe that Georgia should have been in the college football playoff, there's clearly some data that boosts that point that Sankey's trying to make. Many of you saw this. Uh, the hard Rock sports book in down in uh, South Florida uh, put out some information this week that if Georgia were to be playing either of the two teams playing for the national championship on Monday, that's either Washington or Michigan georgia would be the favorite over both as you see there they'd be at a two and a half point favorite against michigan they'd be a six and a half point favorite against washington so this idea that uh that georgia should have been in the top four well certainly the sports book sports betting data seems to back that up nick saban told us a year ago that's the thing that ought to matter more than anything else is who's favorite over whom so from that standpoint as the hard rock points out perhaps georgia should have been in the college football playoff and it certainly speaks to the fact that it's ridiculous that not only was georgia not in the uh, top Four, not only was Georgia not in the college football playoff but they were actually ranked coming into bowl season six behind the Florida State team and they end up beating by 60 points opt-outs or not now by now you certainly understand that all of this is very well-traveled ground this discussion of whether or not Georgia should or shouldn't have been in the playoff we've all kind of had our turn to uh, discuss all of that right now and the behavior of Florida State in the aftermath of all of this has gotten plenty of discussion too so you may be wondering okay well why bring this back up right now I think it's really important to understand a couple of things here moving forward. I think it's really important to sort of understand what time it is, to use a phrase that you sometimes hear uh, these days. That for as distasteful as it seems like Florida State has behaved, you know, incessant whining, petulant, you know, we'll take our ball and go home. Essentially, you know, not even trying, it appeared in the Orange Bowl, content to be embarrassed with a little more than a shrug about all of that. At the very least, I believe that Florida State seems to understand that when it comes to what's about to happen in college football, that there is nothing more important than arguing your own case. There is nothing more important than taking very seriously the idea of what is in our own best interest and therefore taking your fist, pounding it on the table, Uh, in the hopes of getting your own best interest to be the sort of prevailing argument of the day. Now, in the case of Florida State, there's a very simple and easy reason why they're able to do that. Because Florida State's not a part of the financial windfall that the rest of the sport is enjoying, or at least much of the rest of the sport is enjoying. SEC teams, Big Ten teams are making a lot more money than Florida State is. So therefore, the only thing Florida State really has is, is a competitive opportunity on the field. And so therefore, that's what they're arguing for. But moving forward, this is where you're going to be really careful for the SEC because I got to tell you, there's a part of what Greg Sankey says there that makes me a little bit nervous. You know, Sankey says, hey, we believe that Georgia should have been one of the four best teams, but we also caution Georgia that if things were to go wrong, you know, to basically be, you know, careful about how you argue that and remember this is the deal we all made and this is the agreement we all made here. Basically saying, hey, don't be such a squeaky wheel that you. Hurt the overall objective, which is to make as much money as we possibly can. And look, I realize this is a certain naive level of thinking. It's a little bit of a pie in the sky type approach, whatever else. But if I'm Georgia, my response back to Greg Sankey on that would be, you know, our goal is not to be a part of the absolute biggest business possible in college football. Our goal is to still win games and our goal is to still win championships. And you'd love for Georgia to sort of view that as more important than just being in unanimous agreement on, you know, uh, a system that's obviously enriching programs in the SEC and programs in the Big Ten. Uh, You know, Sankey to me seems to be a little bit too much of a defender of the system in this case because the system's obviously enriching a lot of people the sec programs included and perhaps not enough of a defender of an sec team that perhaps feels like it should have been in the college football playoff and what's weird about that is is that when you want to go back to the time in which the sec was moving sort of under the cover of darkness much to the surprise of many to add Texas and Oklahoma at that point in time you know Sankey's sticking out his chest and he's SEC he's SEC he's conference pride sort of bragging on what the SEC was willing to do to take these two programs away but now that that's done the financial part of this is taken care of his message to uh, Georgia or Alabama if it would have been left out is hey we need to all get along here because there's a lot of money to be made by our unanimity on all of this and you know i don't I don't like that necessarily. I you know, I still think the competitive part of college football ought to matter. And frankly, I think it ought to matter to most of us more than the whole business part of this does. But it sort of sounds like to me on the base of that statement, Sankey's a lot more interested in the business concerns than he is the actual competitive concerns. And I hope that's not you know where all this is moving to. And I'd say the same thing, frankly, to a degree about Kirby Smart, who, you know, after the Orange Bowl, I would say, argued more forcefully, for some sort of system change that made things a little easier on Florida State with its opt-outs, I'd say that Kirby's argument on behalf of Florida State was a lot more forceful than his argument was on behalf of his own team after the SEC championship. And y'all, that's not the way this is going to be moving forward. We're about to enter into an era in college football where there's not less arguing, there's more arguing. There is a 12-team playoff that's about to occur, and we're going to have three layers of arguing moving forward. We're going to be arguing about who makes the college football playoff. In other words, the difference between the number 12 team and the number 13 team. But within the confines of who makes the playoff, the next layer of argument is, who gets a chance to have one of those four buys and who gets a chance to skip one round of the playoff and move on to the quarterfinals now the eight teams after that who gets a chance to host one of those playoff games and who gets a chance to has a chance and has to endure the chance of going on the road for one of those playoff games you're essentially gifting one team three points in a battle against another when it comes to hosting a game versus going on the road the overall value of being at home is that much and that's a part of of the debate going forward. And I still don't know for sure if college football fully understands the the nature of that debate. There is a very big difference, we would say, between the best of the SEC and the best of the ACC. And in the case of, like say, Alabama compared to Florida State, it seems like that difference was respected. But in the case of Georgia compared to Florida State, I'm not quite so sure that difference was respected. In fact, we know it wasn't. Georgia was excluded from the playoff and ranked below Florida State in the last CFP ranking because Florida State happened to be undefeated and Georgia happened to have one loss after winning 29 straight games but that pays no attention to the fact that Florida State plays in a lesser league a league that does not play on the same level as the SEC or perhaps the Big Ten which has got uh you know two future teams in this year's national championship game so my point here simply is, is that if you're Greg Sankey speaking in the Fine Bomb show, or if you're Kirby Smart speaking after the game in terms of you know concern for Florida State and its issues with the opt-outs and things like that, I think everybody involved in college athletics, the head coaches, the conference commissioners, the athletic directors, everybody who has sort of a vested interest in their own success, I think they've got to be ready to argue that case going forward. I, th- I think you've got to be ready to kind of roll up your sleeves and do battle. And you can say that Florida State has been distasteful, and they have almost seem willing to kind of blow up the entire system uh, or at least put the entire system in jeopardy as a way of kind of getting what they think is best for them. And I know that's the kind of thing that makes them pretty unpopular, and I get that, but there's also an element to which I sort of respect the idea that they're not working to save college football right now. They're working to save themselves. And there is something to be said about having an idea of what it is in your own best interest and working to get that and not worrying so much about working together to make the sport as financially lucrative as it can possibly be or as big a business it can possibly be. There's something to be said about taking care of your own best interest, and Florida State seems to be doing that right now. And I would say that for Georgia and the other SEC teams, understanding what that's all about moving forward, I think it's going to be a pretty important next step. My name is Brandon Adams, and this is Dog Nation Daily, the daily podcast for Georgia Bulldogs fans, presented today by Kroger, and we have been working very, very hard around here, and I certainly appreciate a lot of people who have been doing a lot of stuff to sort of get this show kind of back to normal. We had all kinds of issues behind the scenes here. I won't bore you with all the details on that. You're probably aware of many of that. We've had a lot of folks working very hard to kind of get us back to where we need to be. And boy, it is a great pleasure to be able to do some of that again today. I'm sort of pushing some more buttons in a way than I never have before, but we're having a good time with all of that. And we certainly appreciate you being here and being a part of it. And we appreciate our friends at Kroger being a part of all this there as well. Uh, longtime friends of ours here on dog nation daily and man they have got really fun and good stuff coming up for you here in the brand new year i want to tell you about something kroger chef jr you've heard me talk about this before your first chance to experience kroger chef jr for 2024 takes place tomorrow and that's going to be a great time this month the Kroger Chef Junior menu item is chicken salad you can enjoy that tomorrow there's also a chance to be a part of this on January 20th as well at select Kroger locations and the great thing about this guided kids cooking experience is it's just seven dollars per child so if you go to the website KrogerChefJunior.com, that's the word junior spelled out J-U-N-I-O-R KrogerChefJunior.com. you can find out about the participating locations near you that are uh, doing Kroger Chef Jr. here this month. And you can find out how you can get uh, an apron, a patch, a chef's hat, and a spatula for your child, plus be a part of making some chicken salad, which is a lot of fun. Uh, KrogerChefJunior.com for more on that. That is KrogerChefJunior.com for more on that. All right. Here on Dog Nation Daily, presented by Kroger here today. Coming up in a couple of minutes, we've got Connor Riley pinching for our normal Friday guest, Jeff Sintel. Jeff is out and about and traveling, so we'll catch up with Jeff, I'm assuming, sometime soon. Uh, we haven't had Jeff on the show a ton lately, but we'll catch up with him coming up uh, in the uh, in the near future, I know for a fact. But it's actually a great day to have Connor on the show, because Connor's written a couple of very interesting pieces at Dog Nation recently, dognation.com. One of those involving the recent transfer wide receiver to George Michael Jackson, in fact, sort of step in and preview that discussion let's get ready to go around the doghouse right now poured today by our friends at the finish long drink and i'm going to try my best to avoid any sort of king of pop related puns on all of this but nonetheless georgia did add another transfer receiver yesterday their second of this cycle london humphreys obviously coming in there as well and you see the graphic from uh from michael jackson yesterday uh celebrating his arrival from usc to the university of georgia by the way we've got some uh, news i'll get to here in just a, a second as it relates to another georgia bulldog we'll get to that here coming up in a second but jackson on his way to the uh, university of georgia becoming the second transfer wide receiver for Georgia here in this cycle, and I think it sets up pretty inter- something pretty interesting about Georgia and the wide receiver position. And before I get to that, let me just go ahead and give you this update here. Uh, so Nazir Stackhouse, this was news we were hoping for. Stackhouse has kind of teased this a little bit on Instagram, and you know we're kind of in that time of year where there's live news sort of breaking as the show's going on so we do have this nice looking graphic coming from nazir stackhouse says that he says i am running it back and i'm returning to georgia for 2024 great job by our folks there behind the scenes to get this up to get this out on the screen and really good news here in just this uh just as we're doing the show live the 10 a.m. hour on this Friday, Nazir Stackhouse coming back to Georgia for 2024. That's exciting news. Big boost to the Georgia defensive line. This is a group that obviously is going to have high expectations here next year. And having a veteran player like Stackhouse returning is the kind of thing that uh I think Georgia fans ought to celebrate because if you need ready made capable defensive lineman, the likes of Nazir Stackhouse not easy to find those in the transfer portal and certainly not easy to find those right now from the high school rank so Stackhouse coming back is a big deal this is not totally unexpected it's been sort of hinted as a possibility we'll wait and see if Warren Brinson chooses to join him but there had been some hope that uh the Nazir Stackhouse might come back and now he is so Georgia getting some good news there with its defensive line we'll do more on that here coming up in just a moment that is certainly good news let me though transition back to the news we were planning on talking about which broke yesterday and by the way it's just sort of that kind of time around dog nation right now with with stories breaking here uh left and right guys making their announcements to either leave or return or uh, something in between uh Jackson the receiver from USC coming in here now this sort of brings up a couple different questions. Question number one is, okay, well, if you watch him individual highlights, it certainly seems like Jackson's a pretty good player. Uh, The overall stat line was not incredibly robust. So how good is Jackson actually for UGA? And that's one of the things that can kind of only be answered by his performance on the field once he gets to Georgia. But sort of broader than that, uh, and perhaps more interesting than that, is what we see from Georgia the last couple of years is a program that has certainly not made the transfer portal a main mechanism for talent acquisition in other position groups. And, and Kirby Smart's even said, said as much, that, that they don't want to use the transfer portal as their main way of acquiring talent. They want to use high school football recruiting as their main way of acquiring talent. But the receiver position, they have been more than happy to go out and get the transfer receivers. Last year, it's Dominic Lovett, Ron Rod Thomas. This year, it's London Humphreys and Michael Jackson. That Georgia seems willing to do something the receiver position, it's either been unwilling to or just no need to do when it comes to the overall, uh, the other position groups. And so I think it's fair to wonder, okay, well, exactly what does that mean and exactly what is that all about? And I think there's a, an attempt to sort of jump to – kind of the last page on all of this and say, well, is Georgia having to do this as some sort of shortcut? Because this is what we say about other programs. When other programs are really aggressive in the transfer portal, we say about them, well, they're just taking a shortcut here because they were unable to do this when it comes to, uh, you know, the high school ranks. And is Georgia only going into the transfer portal because it's proving unable of bringing guys like this in uh, as, as high school receivers? And, In in one respect, perhaps that's a little bit of a fair thing to bring up. I would say that it is obvious that of all the various position groups on both sides of the ball, offense and defense, the one position group where Georgia's recruiting success has lagged in comparison to these other groups is at wide receiver. This would seem to be a position where Georgia does not play at the same level, it plays at the other spots. But let me give you a different way to view that for a moment. Let me give you kinda let me kind of flip that perspective on its ear just for a moment that while it is just obviously true that you run through all the names i mean i loved mike matthews the five-star receiver from parkview high school i think he's a great dude he's a terrific player i think he's got uh, some intangible qualities i mean i'd loved for mike matthews to have come to georgia this year and that seemed like that conversation never really got off the ground so that's an example of georgia just not being able to impress a five-star receiver the way that it seems to impress five stars other positions never really happened Same thing for like Ryan Wingo or Jeremiah Smith or guys like that, you know, kind of down the line with Luther Burden, but ultimately Burden chose to go to Missouri. We can cite all these examples, save George Pickens, the one five-star battle that Georgia did, did win for receiver, but we can sort of cite all these examples of, you know, Georgia perhaps trying to get involved with the guy and ultimately that just not really happening, that it certainly seems like Georgia has not You know, been able to recruit that position as well as other positions. That's just sort of objectively and factually true. But ultimately, I would say that the best way to judge Georgia and the receiver position is not by the raw talent it's brought in, but by the end results the receivers that it does have have produced. And this is where I think something really interesting happens where. I would say from an efficiency standpoint Georgia probably does as well at the receiver position as virtually anything else. I mean, this is a team that was last year 11th in American passing yards per game, tied for 6th in America in yards per pass attempt. Now, a lot of this speaks to the quarterback, but it's still the passing attack overall. By the way, that yards per attempt number tied Georgia with USC, who had the Heisman Trophy winner and has, you know, this history of great passing attack, but on a yards per attempt number, Georgia and USC were the exact same last year. Uh, passing touchdowns last year Georgia a little worse in that category but still 18th best in america so I, I think the actual vantage point to you to view the receiver position from is not the raw materials that george is bringing in but the end results those receivers are producing and this continues to be about as efficient a position group as exists based on what Georgia is getting out of the talent that it has. And I think that matters. I'm going to talk more about why it does here coming up in a moment. Connor Riley is ready to join us for that. But prior to that, let me remind you that this is around the doghouse poured today by the finished long drink here on Dog Nation Daily. And as you roll in towards weekend, and I am looking forward to a weekend. I'm not going to lie to you. I am. I am ready for a fun weekend. And the finished long drink makes any weekend more fun, whether you're enjoying The peach flavored version, which is in the peach day for a limited time here, or one of the other varieties of the long drink, the cranberry, the long drink strong, eight and a half percent alcohol by volume, the long drink zero, no carbs, no sugar after a pretty busy Christmas season. I probably need some long drink zero here for a little bit or the traditional in a blue can, grapefruit flavor, the gin kick. All of those options are there for you and anything that you want to do here this weekend out and about enjoying some time with family and friends the finished long drink a great way to do that so go to thelongdrink.com you can kind of find out more about the story of how it comes from finland and at one point in time part of the summer games back in helsinki in the 1950s been in america now for a few years been in georgia now for a little while there as well and just enjoy what has been a big uh part of our dog nation lives for a long time here the finished long drink Uh, make sure you try some of that the finished long drink pouring around the doghouse for us here today now with that said let me bring connor riley into this discussion here right now because connor first of all thank you for being here in place of Jess intel here today but also uh in the furtherance of the discussion about michael jackson as a receiver uh and then we'll get to the Nazir house stuff too there's a lot going on here right now let me start with this before we get into what this means and what it represents the sort of larger picture here how about jackson individually as a player how good do you think he is
2: yeah, I think at worst, he's a depth piece. Uh, a guy that can come in has played high-level football before, and, and this is a Georgia wide receiver room that just needs bodies. Uh, they're losing at least six guys right now, four to the transfer portal, two to the NFL draft. And when you get a guy that's can that has played at a high level, that has played in a high-functioning offense before, I think you have to go out there and take that. I know he can help out as a pump returner as well, though. I still expect Anthony Evans to be the guy at that position for Georgia. So – I think at the bare minimum, this is a quality depth add for Georgia in terms of what they're going to be getting uh, at at the wide receiver position. I think if – and there were certainly some people scratching their heads about this given Jackson went into the portal uh, early on in the process, took an early visit to Georgia the same weekend that London Humphreys and Xavier McLeod committed. I think if Georgia knew that it was going to get a better wide receiver out of the transfer portal at this stage in the process, it would have already done so. And so there's some familiarity here – Jackson played for uh, a member on Georgia staff, David Hill, when he was out at Desert Pines High School, the same high school that Darnell Washington played at. So there's some familiarity here. And Georgia, I think, knew somewhat of what it was getting. And when it comes to the transfer portal, where the hit rate is maybe only about 50% in, in terms of you know getting a guy that can come in and help you, when you have a guy known variables and coming in, especially with Dante Williams being the former uh, defensive backs coach at USC, I think the familiarity that existed there was why he was a take at this point in time to help out this team in 2024.
0: So you wrote a story the other day at dognation.com about this I guess it would have been yesterday that I think is really interesting about how you know George is essentially taking more transfer receivers right now than it is uh, actual high school wide receivers and my response to that is is that as long as the results are good I sort of don't care. I mean, we've gotten used to seeing Georgia go out and get five-star this and five-star that. At the receiver position, they don't really swim in those waters. And I think we kind of understand why Georgia gets negatively recruited against when it comes to wide receiver. That's become a very pricey you know, position in NIL, we're led to believe. Georgia perhaps not quite as willing to be as aggressive on the front end as some programs are. So, therefore, Georgia is just kind of going after a little bit more of a economic choice when it comes to receiver position economic base choice when it comes to receiver position but as long as the results have georgia near the best in the country in the overall passing attack i think that's actually something to commend georgia for as opposed to something to be critical of georgia for i'm not saying you being critical but for some fans they're kind of wondering okay when does the big breakthrough occur i would say given the fact that there's sort of a scarcity of resources for all college teams that as long as the results are like this I'm not quite so sure that Georgia needs to recruit a better caliber of receiver at a high school anymore, and that going out and getting the sort of transfer receiver that can kind of come in and be a part of this, that actually may just be just fine.
2: Yeah, I think you're right in looking at this. If this is part of a whole economic pie here, and I, I understand we might start losing some people talking about economics and whatnot. Uh, I, I certainly see your point with that there. I, I will say, look, I thought the wide receivers struggled to separate in the loss against Alabama now. Alabama does have two NFL caliber starting cornerbacks in, in Terry and Arnold and Coyd McKintree. You're not going to see that on a weekend week out basis. But when Brock Bowers and Ladd McConkey were compromised in that game, uh, I, I just felt the rest of the Georgia wide receivers struggled to really get open and create separation. Now you're losing, you know, they were your two top wide receivers for a reason. I think if that's true for most teams, you're going to see them struggle in that, in that point. Uh, and look, we have seen Georgia still, I, th- I think, go out and try and build through the recruiting ranks. You've seen Kirby Smart. Uh, he, he's come out and said as much. You know, we want to build all position groups through the recruiting ranks. And you do have guys that can come in and play early. Dylan Bell did that. A.D. Mitchell, Jermaine Burton, George Pickens. But I, I think, as you point out, we've sort of seen Georgia go maybe about this moneyball-esque situation when it comes to wide receiver they're just not going to spend big. I think that's part of the reason they didn't end up landing Nykar at one-time commitment in this class. They also don't end up a- adding Mike Matthews, a five-star prospect. I think you and I agree is right mm-hmm. up there with the most talented high school players in the country this mm-hmm. season. So, And while you would love to have those guys, look, Georgia feels comfortable in terms of what it's going to be able to find out of the transfer world because say what you want about it, and there are certain positions, I think defensive line, offensive line, and cornerback uh, or secondary that are going to be tough. consistently get good players out of wide receiver that's not the case you're going to be able to go in and find good players at that position i think every single cycle i know georgia really likes what it has in london humphreys i think what interests me more is michael jackson of usc and colby young of miami those are one-year players that is not traditionally what georgia has done also they do not come from sec schools yes usc and miami are big time programs but they're not exactly sec caliber and so I think with that in mind, I, I do think that this signals maybe Georgia pushing a little bit more of it, its chips into the 2024 season. Uh, you know, Michael Jackson and Col- and Kobe Young have the chance of taking away reps from say a guy like Tyler Williams, and so long term that might you know make you wonder a little bit about what the future of this wide receiver position is. I think it's a clear sign, and this is something you and I have talked about before. I think college football now is becoming much more of a a one-year-at-a-time sport. And the additions of Jackson and Young, who are both one-year players, who are both coming to play with Carson Beck for one more season, who himself is coming back to Georgia for one more season, I think only furthers this idea that we're just going to have to take this thing one year at a time. I think the wide receiver position is really the first one to show that. But I think if, as we get further and further out from the rest of college football, you're going to see more and more teams sort of look at this in terms of patching up certain holes on their
0: roster. I also believe this that we've kind of reached peak talent level for the very best teams in the country. I think Alabama this year was like, you know, like the high, 90%, like four and five star, like the highest level it's ever been or something like that. Um, I, I think moving forward, you know, the idea that you win a national championship by having like 11, five stars in offense, 11, five stars in defense, and just literally obliterating your competition. I don't think that's the nature of the sport going forward because, A, NIL is pricey, B, there's freedom of movement for players, and so therefore, a lot of guys congregate on one team, that just may not be the easiest thing to do anymore. It may feel more like the NFL, and like you said, you know we kind of lose people when you kind of get into like salary cap economics and things like that, but NFL teams have gotten used to this for a long time. Uh, if you've got the very expensive quarterback, then you've got to be okay with just good somewhere else, guys who are probably you know exceeding expectations other places. You can't have a million and you know patrick mahomes in your roster if you've got a patrick mahomes that means you've got to go a little cheaper somewhere else and you know for georgia to go less heralded transfer wide receivers because statistically speaking that's working you know to me that may be for me a little bit more in keeping with what college football is about to be
2: so yeah at one i mean you can look at this monday's national championship game washington has zero five star players on it uh Uh, has not had a top five recruiting class. It's the first time in a while two things are going to be broken in terms of no top five recruiting class in the last five seasons and without a true generational quarterback. I like J.J. McCarthy, but he is not what Cam Newton or Trevor Lawrence were. And and then Washington is even even a further anomaly. I'm not even 100% sure if they are a team that meets the blue chip ratio threshold, which we had thought for a long time had sort of been an indicator of who can win a national championship. But when you have Michael Penix there, and you've identified the talent that they have and developed the talent they have at that wide receiver room, it helps you cover up for a lot of things. I think the NFL analogy that I want to sort of build off that you just made, and the Chiefs maybe aren't a great example this year because they're struggling for a number of reasons, not just because the wide receiver room is bad. In the NFL, you're gonna have the the, the best teams have elite players at, at a number of positions. But I think what separates the great teams. It's their ability to, yes, you obviously have great players in certain spots, but it's can you be league average at spots that you don't deem worthy of donating your resources towards? It's, you know, like the Philadelphia Eagles, in my mind, are a perfect example of this. You know, they've prioritized their offensive line and their defensive line and their wide receivers, and that's great. But what's really, I think, weighing them down are their linebackers and safeties are among the worst in the NFL. And if those guys are merely just average as opposed to being the worst at what they do, I, I think that changes the way we view this team here. And so going forward uh, to your larger point, it's not so much about having the greatest strength and strength in raw numbers. You know, Ohio State and Alabama signed the number one and two recruiting classes in that 2021 recruiting cycle when you and I spent a lot of time talking about this in terms of just going out and getting national guys those were the only two teams that were really doing it because they were just able to lean back on what they had done for the past decade since those two guys since those classes have come in Alabama has won one playoff game Ohio State has won zero uh I think that only further demonstrates the way that this is all sort of changing and obviously look they're gonna get another crack next year and there'll be more playoff games but I, I think going forward, the goal isn't just total talent accumulation. It's managing, okay, at the areas we're not great at, how do we find just enough to still be good there? without sacrificing what makes us great at other areas on this roster
0: as we've been doing the show here today the news has come out that nazir stackhouse is returning to georgia for 2024 um i think this is really good news for georgia we'll kind of move to the next phase of our conversation by bringing this up i think it's really good news for georgia total candor this is not to me the same thing as like cedric von pran coming back last year or Nolan Smith or Jordan Davis coming back in previous years prior to that I don't put the same category of boy that's the difference maker that changes everything but it certainly makes the Georgia defensive line deeper and therefore better for this upcoming season I guess we'll await you know Warren Brinson who perhaps could make the same decision that Stackhouse has officially made here right now but I do believe the Stackhouse news should be celebrated by Georgia fans I think that it will at the very least he gives Georgia an experienced capable player back On the defensive line for next season, you can never have too many of those.
2: Yeah, one, I think if you get Stackhouse and Brinson back, you get the combo of them. I do think that's a Jordan Davis-level-esque return or a Nolan Smith-level-esque return there. And I think the big thing to know with Nas, one of my favorite interviews, great player, a guy who had an NFL draft round great, I think probably would have been a third, fourth round pick uh, had he elected to declare, but you get him back. He played more snaps in 12 games this year than Jordan Davis played in 15 games in the 2021 season. And so just by simply getting him back for another year, he doesn't necessarily need to get better, though. I know he's going to work hard and do all the things that he needs to do to do so. Getting him back, just it, it frees up a lot of other stuff, and it gives you more depth in that defensive line, particularly in the middle of the defensive line where – no, if he goes pro, Georgia's probably relying a lot on guys like Jordan Hall and Jamal Jarrett who haven't played a ton at that, you know, sort of nose tackle position. And so to get him back, I think this frees guys like Christian Miller up to do more things. Jordan Hall is obviously another player to know there in the middle of the defense. And if you bring back Warren Brinson as well, you get closer to, I think, what made those Georgia defensive lines in, in 2021 and 2022 truly late. Yes, obviously they had impact players like Jalen Carter and Trayvon Walker.
1: But it was a strength in
2: numbers that I think really overwhelmed teams when you're able to have a guy like, say, Jalen Carter come in fresh off the bench. If you're able to do that this coming year and keep guys like Christian Miller fresh and keep guys like Jordan Hall fresh, I think that's going to further help what you're able to do defensively. And we can be honest here. I think the biggest reason that this 2023 team didn't necessarily get to a national championship Is just because I think that defensive front seven, which you saw Michigan, I think, really have its way with Alabama, Mm -hmm. just wasn't quite up to par with what Georgia had had in past seasons. Getting Brinson, or excuse me, getting Stackhouse back for another season, getting Warren Brinson potentially back for another season, already bringing back linebacker Smile Munden for another season, getting those types of NFL players to come back. I mean, Mel Kuyper put out his NFL draft rankings today and still had Smile ranked as the number five inside linebacker prospect. Getting those types of guys to come back where, you know, I think at certain positions, running back, wide receiver, maybe even cornerback, you can come in and play a little bit. But having adults in the middle of that defense on the offensive line as well there, I think can't be understated enough. And for the way that Georgia wants to play and would love to play. I think getting those guys to come back for another season is absolutely massive.
0: Okay, so let's try to round this up then. Transfer portal window has closed. Uh, Unless there's some sort of straggling paperwork, it seems like that's probably over and done with for Georgia. You mentioned Brinson. That's a big deal to pair with Stackhouse. Georgia fans hoping for that. Online chatter about Xavier Truss. What else is still out there for Georgia right now? Are we holding our breaths? If you're a Georgia fan on the wide receivers, Ra, Ron, Love it, or is that kind of put to bed now? What else is still out there for Georgia fans to be worried about over the course of this weekend?
2: Yeah, worry might not be the word that I would use at this point, but to monitor moving forward, I think the three wide receivers: Arian Smith, Ra, Ra Thomas, and Dominic Love Do they all officially elect to come back for next season? I would say the answer to that question is yes right now. Though I do wonder if maybe the addition of Michael Jackson maybe indicates you know something in particular for Arian Smith, the he to move on and go somewhere else. I do think as well, you know, Truss and Ratledge are interesting. I think Georgia likes what they have in Michael Morris and Dylan Fairchild. But when you bring back guys that have that level of starting experience, and you saw this year on the offensive line how injuries can so quickly impact and shake things around, to have guys that can play multiple positions in Truss's case and a guy that was a second-team All-American in Ratledge's you absolutely take those guys if they elect to come back. So I think it's all, you know, obviously we're still waiting on Warren Brinson here as well to make his decision in terms of the NFL draft. And they're not going to have to make that official until Monday, December 15th. So potentially we've got a whole nother week of this, but for the most part, you know, the players that aren't going to be on Georgia's roster next year have already left the program and we're getting a much more clear picture of what this team is going to look like and what this roster is going to look like. And, even before guys like Ratledge, Truss, and Lovett all announced they're coming back, a lot of people still see Georgia as the number one team to start the country next season.
0: Uh, very, very interesting. Our one final thing to get to before we let you go, and, you know, I, listen, I'm just disappointed. I mean, I just feel like that, I don't know. Uh, so the debate this week, Is after the decision by Brock Bowers to move on the NFL, and obviously Bowers will leave George as one of the all time great players in program history. I feel like this is one of those things that we were actually on pretty early, you know, having him sort of recognized as an all time great at a time in which you know, maybe not everybody else was fully on board. Well, now everybody sort of sees that for Bowers, but, you know, leave it to the young generations or take things a step too far. You know, Connor this week at dognation.com making the case for Bowers as the greatest Georgia player of all time. Now, I want to be serious about this just for a second. I do not believe that you can compare the Bowers numbers to the Herschel Walker numbers because of the entirely different era that exists for the sport. And I think that you're a big enough sports fan. I think you understand context around errors and things like that. I just think the Herschel era is just so different. And frankly, you know how I feel about this. There's also, I think, I think, been an intentional attempt to erase the legacy of Herschel Walker as a football player. And I just think that's a part of this. I'm not saying you're doing that, but I think that has been a part of this. Herschel was only the number two all-time great player when this list came out. Uh, was it 2019 it came out? whereas historically, it always been viewed as number one um I, I do believe there's been a little bit of a herschel walker erasure that's going on in recent years and that matters to me and so therefore you know i can have bowers as my second greatest georgia player of all time but i can't have him as best player of all time because herschel walker is the greatest georgia player of all time you obviously made your argument on the other side of that on earlier this week so i'll give you a chance to sort of make your case
2: yeah i guess my follow-up to you you know, obviously we can't take numbers into this. Uh, Herschel Walker had five times the amount of touches that Brock Bowers did. Uh, I, I think that it was obviously always going to skew it in a certain way there. I mean, I'd point out, you know, Quinchon Junkins has replicated numbers pretty close to what Herschel Walker has done these last two seasons. And, and, you know, look, football is a team game. This is not an individual game, I think, in the way basketball perhaps is where we talk about goats so often. Uh, it, it's not swimming. It's not tennis, et cetera, things like that. You look at the impact they had on the team in terms of scoring touchdowns. Brock Bowers was better at that on a per play rate than than Herschel Walker was. Brock scored a touchdown one every six times he touched the ball. Herschel Walker scored a touchdown one every 19 times he touched the ball. Uh, Herschel Walker in his time at Georgia, Georgia went 33 and three in games that Brock Bowers played at Georgia. They went 38 and two. And at the end of the day, the thing that I come down to, Brock Bowers was the best offensive player the 2021 national championship team and the 2022 national championship team. Brock Bowers won two national championships at Georgia. Herschel Walker won one. And I know that that there's a team award there as well. But at the end of the day, for a play that has defined winning, that has defined the true golden age of college football, where I believe it is harder today to win the national championship than it was necessarily in the early part of the 1980s. I think that tips it in favor of Brock Bowers, in my opinion.
0: All right, let me do two things, then we'll wrap this up. In response to that, there's no doubt that Brock has played on better teams. Like, the 1980 team is not in the same category of dominance. If, if you had a computer simulation where you could play, like, Madden-style games, there's no way 1980 beats 2021, uh, even sort of, you know, I guess uh adjusted for for differences in eras the the 1980 team relative to its competition is not as dominant as the 2021 team or 2022 teams were relative to its competition that era I totally acknowledge much better teams that Brock Bowers played on but my sort of last argument in favor of Herschel and I realize this is still quantified but I just believe this is genuinely true there is just something to be said for doing what Herschel did When everybody in the building knew he was getting the football, when the entirety of the defense, when every fan in the stands, when everybody knew Herschel was getting the ball. It's like the old line. I think they used to say this about Ricky Anderson there's a difference between stealing bases and being a base stealer. Anybody can steal a base, but a base stealer is getting a lead at first base and stealing second, even when the catcher knows that that you're about to go and you still get it. That's just what Herschel Walker was. He was the guy that just put up the numbers that he put up even with the full knowledge of everybody in the stadium that he was going to be the guy that touched it and that to me is what sort of makes him sort of a I mean, to me, he's like a Ruthian figure in the sport. He's almost defying, you know, comparison to anybody else here. And I, you know, I I do think that just even with the passage of time, it becomes difficult to to remember that. Even even if it's not, you know, some other factor involved here, with the passage of time, it becomes difficult to, to to remember that. And I think that Georgia ought to do more to sort of celebrate its greatness of the past because I think it becomes an easy thing to forget if you're not careful. And you know, I think it's a fun conversation. I just like any kind of debate like this. I think they're fun. But in the case of remembering things that happened 40 years ago or things that happened 100 years ago I do think that's an important thing to do because history gets lost to time if you're not careful and I do not Connor want the Herschel legacy to get lost to time
2: yeah I I think that's fair and I would agree that I I don't think that Georgia has done a good enough job honoring its all-time greats in particular Herschel Walker here obviously uh I think with some of his political comments and political minded things he is absolutely tainted in some people's minds you know his, his legacy overall But what he did as a Georgia football player uh, absolutely deserves to be recognized and commended. It's interesting to me you bring up uh, Babe Ruth, who was famously playing against plumbers and longshoremen. You know, look, I'm just saying the quality of athletes is not the same in 1980 as they are today. You know, uh, Herschel Walker was probably playing against frat stars and and future investment or uh, insurance salesmen, whereas, you know, Brock Bowers out here playing against grown men in the sec week in, week out basis the sec is a better league they're playing better teams they're playing ohio state and beating them and and i will say to your point about when everyone in the stadium knows he's getting the ball look brock powers did that too i you think to the auburn game this year you think his touchdown in the 2022 national championship game the game was still on the line there and georgia was only up by a point the fourth down play he made against ohio state in the college football playoff semifinal in 2022 In my mind, these last couple of years, when Georgia has needed to give someone the football to make a play and the other defense knows who that is, Brock Bowers has been that guy. And more often than not, he certainly delivered in those situations.
0: Just know this, I will never forgive you for making me argue against Brock Bowers on something. I just want you to understand, I will never forgive you for putting me in that position. But I do enjoy the discussion. I appreciate that. And Connor, I know you've had a lot of great stuff here as of late, looking at all the roster moves that Georgia makes as it continues to try to you know, keep pace and, uh, and uh, put together a championship contending team for 2024. So always fun to be able to do all of that. Connor, have a great weekend, and uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you. Uh, listen, your regular day, or when somebody can't be here, or whatever else, <laughs> you're always ready for us, and I certainly appreciate that. And we will look forward to talking to you soon.
2: Yeah, just throw up the bat signal, and I'll be there as always. It was a pleasure, BA.
0: Let's take a look around the rest of the league. This is SEC food. Good stuff from Connor Riley, indeed. There on the Brock Bauer stuff and everything else obviously Nazir Stackhouse coming back to Georgia that's good news for today the uh arrival of Michael Jackson a transfer wide receiver that's also good news there too so a lot of good things going on with UGA here right now and you love all of that. And speaking of good things, there's also plenty of good things going when it comes to Royal Caribbean there as well. Exciting stuff for 2024, including the debut of Icon of the Seas in a couple of weeks I got a chance to be on board that ship. I can't wait for that. It's going to be an incredible, incredible experience and so much fun. And I can't wait to come back and tell you all about it. But the thing I can tell you about it right now is your chance to be on board yourself comes with uh, my friend jessica slater great travel agent specially selected for us by royal Caribbean. you can give her a call 770-718-9147 that's 770-718-9147 you can also email her jay slater at dreamvacations.com she'll tell you everything you need to know about being on board this massive cruise ship completely redefining what it means to take a cruise vacation largest water park at sea, unbelievable like new restaurant concepts and especially lounges on board. Entertainment options, the likes of which have never been uh, experienced anywhere else. And One of the things that Royal Caribbean really does a great job of is kind of redefining, you know, what it means to be entertained on a cruise ship with the great Broadway style shows, the aqua theater, you know, high diving, acrobatic type stuff that goes on, the ice skating shows, things like that. My kids in particular love the ice skating shows. They've just uh, always gravitated towards those anytime we're on a Royal Caribbean cruise ship. So you get a chance to experience the same thing too. And by the way, speaking of big for 2024, How about the Dog Nation cruise on board an Oasis-class cruise ship here this year? Allure of the seas. And we are on the real countdown for this. It's going to be here before you know it. Uh, Once again, Jessica can help you out with all of that. Want to see you on board. Hundreds of you have already signed up to be a part of it. And more of you still have your chance to do uh, that in the uh, weeks to come here. So please check out a website that Jessica's put together. It's called royaldogs.com, royaldogs.com dogs of course spelled the way that it's supposed to be d-a-w-g-s and you can be on board the dog nation cruise with us here coming up all right a couple of SEC through stories to get to for you here starting with surprising news yesterday quinn Sean judkins the terrific old miss running back put his name in the transfer portal now there is a lot about this that i think is very interesting primarily the fact that it seemed like all the momentum for ohio state excuse me Ohio State uh, all the momentum for Ole Miss had been around who they're adding the transfer portal go out and and getting this guy and getting that guy perhaps most prominently Walter Nolan but there have been others also guys around Ole Miss that were successful in 2023 staying for 2024 wide receiver Trey Harris Jackson Dart the quarterback most prominently and then after all of this momentum for Ole Miss in the transfer portal lo and behold probably the most recognizable name from the Ole Miss roster this season, Quinshawn Judkins, just sort of out of nowhere, announces that he's going into the transfer portal right near the uh, deadline for Ole Miss players to do that. Now, fair to wonder, okay, well, what is going on here? First of all, it's interesting that Lane Giffen was on some sort of fishing trip there was all kinds of social media from him yesterday on fishing trip i believe he's in the bahamas speaking of royal caribbean but i believe he's in the bahamas fishing so you're kind of left to wonder how aware of he was uh, was he of all this because he was out fishing when the judkins news dropped there was a very cryptic message on instagram from old miss quarterback jackson dart using a tom brady quote essentially about the idea of selfish players selfish teammates seemed like that was a little bit of a jab in the direction of judkins so pretty clearly there's some angst here in the Ole Miss program about Judkins making the decision that he's making. And all any of us can do is speculate about this. But this is the speculation I'm willing to offer you here. It certainly appears to me that Ole Miss might be doing a little bit of what you sometimes see in the NFL. We've talked several times today about the way in which college football rosters are being constructed may be a little bit more similar moving forward to the way that NFL rosters are being constructed and what do you know about the running back position in the NFL it just has less value than it used to have and for Ole Miss that's pretty clearly spending pretty big as it relates to uh, some you know transfer portal players high value defensive linemen things along uh, things of that nature edge rusher like Prince Uleman from Florida that the running back position, given the finite amount of financial resources that any program has, may just not be worth quite as much. And Quinshawn Judkins may be saying, well, you're giving X dollars to this quarterback to stay here, and you're giving X dollars to all these transfers to come here. How about me? You see the numbers that I'm putting up? I want to get mine. And he probably feels like he has more value in the open market, perhaps, that he does. But every program moving forward is going to have to make some very tough decisions about who they really want to work to fight to keep. In the past, college football has been about relational uh, uh relationships when it comes to to players, but we're about to probably move into a little bit more of a transactional age, which is, you know, what is your finite value in comparison to the money that I might have to pay to keep you or the money I might have to pay to get you. And if you're Lane Kiffin, who has a history of producing good running backs no matter where he's been calling plays for, he may just feel like that he can find value at the running back position with a less pricey player than what Quid John Judkins might feel like he's worth in the open market. And I hope that Judkins is making a proper evaluation of his own value. Perhaps somebody somewhere is going to give him a big deal if he wants to go in the transfer portal. But keep this in mind. If a team pays you big dollars to come run the football for them, are they going to want to let you limit your carries? Are they going to want to let, let you save yourself for the NFL where you have a chance to make even more money? Uh, it would stand to reason that teams that make a big financial investment in you to come play for their college team they may want to get the most out of you while you're playing for that college team and they may not be quite as concerned as you are about saving yourself for the future in the nfl here so we're going to see a guy like Jukins, perhaps bet on himself by going to the transfer portal and we're going to have to sort of see how all that works out and i'll also say this and i don't take great pleasure in saying this but there's also an element in which if you want to bring some sanity back into the current NIL age in which we live, you know, oftentimes free markets are about winners and losers. Occasionally, you're going to have to let some guys fail. And occasionally, you're going to have to let some guys sort of bet on themselves and have that not work out in some way or another if you want to kind of produce some sort of sanity back in the market. Because not everybody's going to cash in big in a a situation in which resources are finite and resources are limited. You know, some guys are going to cash into a big way and they're going to have their actions greatly rewarded other guys gonna make a bet on themselves and it's gonna you know crap out that that's just kind of the nature of that Uh, judkins obviously a very good player but what we're about to find out is for the very best teams how much do they value a good running back and is college football becoming a little bit more like the nfl in terms of the belief that well you actually might be able to go out and get success uh production from a running back that's perhaps not as pricey as the famous player like quench on jackets i don't wish him ill ill i hope for the best for him uh, and i think it'll be very interesting to see where he lands and i'm sure there are plenty of good teams that are perhaps interested in a guy who's obviously been so productive but this might be a reflection of a very modern version of what college football roster management looks like here right now speaking of transfers ohio state has now added one there as well. His name is Will Howard. He was the quarterback at Kansas State a year ago. And this is all very weird. Look, everything about Ohio State, I think right now, is really, really strange. Now, I'm obviously not a Buckeyes fan, so perhaps you might get the sense that I revel in saying that, and to a certain extent I probably do. But I'm also trying to be as objective as I possibly can. This year, the thing that made Ohio State less than a college football playoff-level team, something that had been in 2022 and something it expects to be every single year, The thing that really put Ohio State below that level this year was its quarterback play. You know, 2022, Ohio State had C.J. Stroud. Before that, the program had Justin Fields. Before that, they had, you know, keep going. You know, this is a team that has had very successful quarterback play. This year, Kyle McCord was just not that guy, so much so that the Buckeyes were more than happy to move on from McCord at the end of the season, and McCord went to Syracuse because it appears to be that's about the level of quarterback Kyle McCord is, just being completely honest. And so it's been obvious that Ohio State has been in need of a transfer quarterback, you know, viewing Kyle McCord as not being good enough, looking to go out there and replace him. And any, any kind of talk about, like, say, Cam Ward, who's kind of viewed to be the number one quarterback in the transfer market, that never really materialized, either because Ward was driving too high of a bargain or because Ohio State didn't, you know, you know whatever, you know, what whatever the reason was, that never really happened. So now you're going to a guy like Will Howard, who is a pretty mobile quarterback, probably more mobile than McCord, but not a great player and not a guy whose stat line is obviously better than what McCord's is in fact in some respects is even worse and Ohio State fans for a month I realize this is what fans do but for a month leading up to that uh, Cotton Bowl game were trying to tell us that Devin Brown was the real answer for the Buckeyes at quarterback that's the real guy they were waiting for and we're gonna all find out how good Devin Brown really is despite the fact that he couldn't beat out Kyle McCord at any point in time during the year which didn't make logical sense but nonetheless fans don't always lean on logic and clearly buckeyes fans had deluded themselves and thinking that brown was the guy well now for the cotton bowl they know that's not the case and now you're turning to will howard who is not an obvious upgrade if an upgrade at all over kyle mccord for a program that's been quarterback dependent there are some weird stuff going on at quarterback with the buckeyes and to add to that have y'all seen some of the chatter that's been coming out as of late uh I think uh, Dave Biddle from 24-7 Sports had some of this kind of stuff, and other Buckeyes players have spoken out about this. The idea that Ohio State allegedly did not use its practice time very well prior to the uh, Cotton Bowl game, that uh, they didn't use all their practices for one thing, but maybe more important than that, the practices they did have were pretty soft. They didn't tackle very much. They weren't playing very physical. And you know, kind of speaking to the sort of finesse style of football that it seems like Ryan Day has sort of preferred or – just a lack of focus for a program right now that seems to be kind of drifting in sort of a listless direction in comparison to rival Michigan who's playing for national championship. Other teams coming into the Big Ten who have championship aspirations of their own, including the other team in the title game, Washington. This is a very weird time for Ohio State right now. And this is not overstated. This is a program that doesn't seem to know what it's going to do at quarterback next year, or at least doesn't seem to have a guarantee that it's going to get better quarterback play in 2024 than it got in 2023. And uh, certainly had a very ugly showing in a bowl game, and some of the whispers coming out of, perhaps not exactly putting a nose to the grindstone in terms of preparing for that game. Boy, strange stuff there. Uh, a couple of other notes on Alabama here before you uh, wrap up. Terry and Arnold does a weekly interview on I think it's the next round live. I believe he's on there every week. It kind of must be like an NIL type deal or whatever. So Arnold, who's a very good player, obviously. Uh, has said that he sees no indication at all that Nick Saban, to use a double negative, is not returning for 2024. The expectation behind the scenes here is that Saban will be back at Alabama next season. And you know how we feel about this. We think that's good news. We think that Nick Saban, and I say this sort of half-kiddingly, but we think that Nick Saban owes it to Georgia to be on the sideline next September when Georgia and Alabama play. It's a really weird thing, but we actually have never seen a in the Kirby Smart era A battle between Georgia and Alabama in the regular season in a real season with a real crowd with a real week to prepare kind of real normal circumstances Georgia and Alabama have never played during the regular season under those conditions in the Kirby Smart era so Alabama has avoided Georgia in the regular season for every year other than the the weird pandemic year, which we know doesn't count. They have avoided uh, Georgia in the regular season every other year in the entirety of the Kirby Smart era. So finally we get, even if it's in Tuscaloosa for the second straight time, uh, we finally get a Georgia and Alabama regular season matchup. so we think that Nick Saban really owes it to Georgia to be on the sideline for that game and giving not just Georgia fans but the entire college football world the sort of regular season matchup that somehow some way Alabama's found a way to avoid for all of these years uh, we think that really Nick Saban owes it to Georgia to be on the sideline for that game so if what Terry Arnold is saying then that's obviously we would say good news now speaking of Nick Saban one final note here and I have to confess, you know, I, I just sort of see this the way that I do. So Sabin does his what is a weekly appearance with the Pat McAfee Show. A lot of news around the McAfee Show here this week, but uh, on the Pat McAfee Show, and Sabin does not flinch at pointing the finger of blame in the direction of his center Seth McLaughlin, who went into the transfer portal this week after McLaughlin's uh, snap issues uh, in the uh, Rose Bowl game, including in the final play of the game essentially saying that the low snap prevented the running play that Saban says was called from from being successful here. And perhaps that's true. There's certainly reason to believe that it is. But this to me sort of speaks to Sabin going out as going about his business in a way that I just don't believe the Kirby smart would do. And listen, I realized these are essentially grown men. I'm talking about the players to play this sport. And it's just sort of natural to have high expectations and be critical when those expectations are not met. All of that is just a, a real thing that happens. We get all of that. But the idea that Saban, if you saw the clip, you know what I'm talking about, you know, the idea that Saban would sit there on the desk at the McAfee show or on the uh, you know interview screen, the McAfee show, and essentially sort of allow it to be said that McLaughlin cost them the chance to run the play they wanted to run. And he had issues all year long, essentially allowing it to be McLaughlin, the scapegoat for the Alabama loss. I just think that's kind of gross. I really do. And my question for Nick Saban would be: Now, Pat McAfee's not going to follow up on this, but my question for Nick Saban would be: Well, you're the coach. How come you didn't replace him, or how come you didn't coach him to be better? I mean, isn't the old adage in coaching that you're either coaching it or allowing it to happen? How come you didn't coach him up not to snap this way, or how come you continue to allow it to happen and not replace him with someone who's better? If you're, you know, uh, such a great, you know, architect of your program, that some of this kind of points back to Saban here a little bit. But in such a tense moment when Alabama lost a game in such a uh, tense way in the final play of the game, for Saban to sort of sit back and relax and allow McLaughlin to take all the the slings and arrows about all of that, I just think it speaks to something that is obviously and unavoidably true. Saban is truly a great coach, but he is not a good guy. If you put him on trial for being a good guy, you would not have enough evidence to convict him. And I don't care how true it is, the things he's saying about McLaughlin here is center, you know, the idea that he's allowing this young man to take all the blame for the loss. I hope future players who are considering where to play their college football, I hope they are noticing Saban's behavior around this. And we'll make that cruising around the SEC, courtesy of Royal Caribbean. And as we wrap up and get ready to roll into a weekend, we're obviously excited about that. We appreciate your patience as we kind of roll through some things around here. Uh, and obviously, we invite you to stay close to Dog Nation too. Uh, the Nazu, the news, Nazir Stackhouse is returning for 2024. That's up at DogNation.com. What George is getting in wide receiver Michael Jackson. That is up at DogNation.com there as well. And as we close things out today, how about a golden shoe? And our buddy uh, uh Bassin Dog, who's always such a prolific Twitter user or ex user, uh, showing us the great photo here from Brock Bowers, the Florida game in 2021, and the amazing catch and that snapshot there of a ball that's seemingly behind his shoulder. And uh, what Bassin says is how Bowers caught this ball, the human mind can never comprehend. And there was so much of that during the Brock Bowers career. Truly, just a series of superhuman events, it seemed. So truly a worthy golden shoe going the direction of Bass and Dog there on that. And obviously, great remembrances of the Brock Bowers career. And how about the lousy, stinking Gators? The team for whom that event happened, it's been 1,154 days since they've beaten Georgia. And Brock Bowers may be gone, but the fortunes for those lousy, stinking Gators, they show no signs of improving. That is our Gator Hater Updater. We will see all of you back here Monday. Dog Nation Daily presented by Kroger. We will look forward to talking to you then.